السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners We gather for the Tafsir of the Holy Quran Today, insha'Allah, we begin the surah known as Surah Al-Hujarat. It's in the 26th juz part of the Holy Qur'an, out of the 30 parts. It's in terms of sequence and order, it's the 49th surah of the Holy Qur'an. And, but it was one of the latest surahs to be revealed. It's a surah that was revealed in Medina at a very late stage and according to some scholars it's the 106th according to others the 108th surah out of the 114 to be revealed unlike some of the other surahs which i've commented on before and which has which have various names this surah, surah number 49, Surah Al-Hujarat, is more or less only known as Surah Al-Hujarat. It's not known by other names. Hujarat means rooms, apartments, <coughs> chambers. And this is a reference to one of the verses, which we will cover later in the surah, which speaks about a certain incident that took place. And in that context, Allah mentions al-hujurat, the chambers, the apartments, the private quarters, the rooms, referring to the chambers of Rasulullah where his family lived and which were adjacent to his masjid. So the name of the surah is taken from that Fourth verse of the surah in which Allah says, Those who call out to you from behind the apartments, from behind the chambers. So the surah is named after that one word in the fourth verse. So Surah Al-Hujarat, the surah of the inner chambers or quarters, apartments. And we'll learn more about that later. So let us begin. This is the 49th surah, the 106th surah in terms of revelation. It's a late Madani surah revealed in Medina. And 
It's more or less known only by this name, Surat al-Hujarat, the chambers. It only has 18 verses, so it's not that long a surah. Another important thing is that the this surah, Surat al-Hujarat, begins a section of the Holy Qur'an, which is more or less the final sixth of the Qur'an, which is known as al-Mufassal. And al-Mufassal refers to that section of the Qur'an which is preferred and chosen by the Messenger وسلم, as well to be repeatedly recited in the salawat, in the daily prayers. So of course any part of the Qur'an can be recited in any of the prayers but it was the noble custom and tradition of the Messenger وسلم, and therefore his Sunnah to recite mainly the surahs from the Al-Mufassal section of the Qur'an. So the longer and Al-Mufassal, the Al-Mufassal section itself is divided into three. You have the long Mufassal section, which is the beginning surahs, you have the middle or the intermediate mufassal section, and then you have the qisar al-mufassal, meaning the shorter surahs from the al-mufassal which come towards the end of the Qur'an. So the Prophet ﷺ used to recite the shorter surahs of the al-mufassal section, i.e. the final sixth of the Qur'an, in some of the prayers, the middle ones in others, and the longer ones known as the Tiwar al-Mufassal, the longer Mufassal surahs in, in some of the other prayers, such as Dhuhr and Fajr and Dhuhr. Now, and the Qisar al-Mufassal, the shorter ones, predominantly in Maghrib Salah, and the middle, intermediate Mufassal surahs, again predominantly in Asr and Isha. Of course, there were variations at times, but this was uh, a steady pattern of the Prophet ﷺ's tilawah of the Qur'an in Salah. So the whole Al-Mufassal section, which forms the, more or less the final sixth of the Qur'an, which is the preferred section to be recited in all of the daily prayers, the beginning of that Al-Mufassal section, according to many scholars, if not most, is this surah, Surah Al-Hujarat. So, at least according to the Hanafi ulama, the Shafi'i ulama, and the Maliki ulama, the beginning of the Al-Mufassal section is this, the Surah Al-Hujarat. So this is another significant point relating to this surah. So, let me begin the first few words, and then inshallah I'll comment further about the backdrop to the revelation of the main verses of the surah as well as some of the themes of the surah and the period in which it was revealed so a'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem bismillahir rahmanir rahim allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says by the name of allah the most gracious the most merciful يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تُقَدِّمُوا بَيْنَ يَدَيِ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ السَّمِيعٌ عَلِيمٌ O believers, O those who have believed, 
do not be forward, do not advance before Allah and his messenger. And be wary of Allah. Verily, Allah is all hearing, all knowing. That's just the beginning verse. Now, Surah Al-Hujarat, being one of the longer surahs of the Qur'an, it contains a number of different topics and themes. Unlike some of the shorter surahs that we've done from the 30th part of the Qur'an, which more or less cover one theme, or were revealed in their entirety, Surah Al-Hujarat covers a number of different topics. But mainly this surah was revealed in the ninth year of Hijrah. So within two years of the Prophet ﷺ's departure from this world, and meaning before, and in the final two years of his life, Some of the themes of the surah are respect, etiquettes, etiquettes of behavior, of society. The Qur'an guides its followers to adopting the most appropriate behavior, manners, etiquettes, conduct before Allah, before the Creator, before the creation, before the representative of the Creator, the Messenger وسلم, towards one another. Allah guides the believers through the surah towards justice. Establishing justice, upholding justice, especially in one's dealings with others, in one's thoughts and perceptions of others. The Qur'an doesn't just tell us in the surah to avoid conflict. He actually gives us the recipe to achieve that. To adopt certain measures, to avoid certain things in order to prevent conflict. And when conflict and disagreement do arise, then how to tackle it, how to resolve it, how to be just. This surah also speaks about being cautious in terms of not advancing beyond one's position, knowing and recognizing one's limits, boundaries and borders. Never trespassing, never overstepping the mark. Whether it comes to Allah and His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam or one another. Even about accepting and recognizing our boundaries and our limits when it comes to speech, when it comes to thoughts, when it comes to judgment, when it comes to behavior. And although I've used the word boundaries, borders, limits, etiquettes, modes of behavior, this surah teaches us the true meaning of liberty and freedom. Not the kind of freedom 
whereby a person's property is protected and a person's life is protected. And a person's body is protected, but a person's dignity, their honour, their self-worth, their emotions, their inner being, these are not protected. That is not true liberty and freedom. And 1400 years ago, Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam taught us the true meaning of liberty and dignity. Whereby Allah and His Messenger وسلم, taught that it's not just the blood and the property and the belongings of an individual that are sacrosanct and sacred and that cannot be violated, but even his dignity, even his self-worth, even his emotions, even our perception of him, that perception is sacred and therefore it should not be violated. The Sahaba were taught these ideals, these lofty characteristics, and they were actually instilled in their character. This is why we saw a society in Medina around the Messenger وسلم, and by the time of his passing, which was unique, unparalleled, unprecedented, and which should serve as a model of conduct, of behavior, of social etiquette, of society, brotherhood, companionship, Concern, sympathy, welfare, true social welfare, true liberty with dignity. All of that was realized in Medina around the Messenger. And that's what this surah teaches. So, inshallah, we'll cover all of these different topics and themes as we move through the verses. But before we begin today's section, allow me to explain the backdrop to the revelation of the first few verses, which are all entwined, although they appear to be separate. It was the ninth year of Hijrah, and this was the year known as a year of delegations, Amul Wufud, the year of delegations. The reason for this name is that in the eighth year of Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ had conquered Makkah. Now the Muslims controlled Medina, Makkah. The position of the Prophet ﷺ was immensely powerful. He was now recognized throughout Arabia. If not as a prophet, then at least as the preeminent individual with the most devoted followers. And he was recognized as the lead, even if some did not accept him as a messenger of Allah. 
many of the Arabs, especially the Bedouin, were waiting to see what the outcome would be in the struggle between Mecca and Medina. And some of them went to the extent of saying that we shall line wait. We won't oppose Muhammad, nor will we side with him. Let the Quraysh determine the fate of Arabia. If Muhammad is an imposter, then we shall soon recognize it. But if he is a true messenger, and if Allah does give him victory and grants him these grand achievements that he speaks of and that his followers speak of, then we will recognize him as the messenger of Allah. So many of them lay in wait. And when Mecca was conquered, and now the Prophet ﷺ was given that position by the people of Arabia, many of them began arriving in Medina, individually as well as in huge delegations. And this was in the ninth year of Hijrah, after the conquest of Mecca. So many delegations came from all over Arabia. So this was known as a year of delegations, Amul Wufud. One of the delegations that arrived in Medina in the ninth year of Hijrah was from the tribe of Banu Tamim. Tamim was a huge tribe. And various representatives of the different clans of Banu Tamim, they arrived in Medina. And according to some reports, there were approximately 70, 80 of them. They arrived as a delegation. And the purpose of many of these delegations was that, in fact, uh, a perfect example would be the, dele the delegation from Taif. After the conquest of Mecca, the Prophet ﷺ marched in the campaign of Hunayn and he fought against some of the other tribes in the Battle of Hunayn. And after the Battle of Hunayn, the Prophet ﷺ moved ahead to lay siege to the city of Taif. They were unable to maintain the siege and after approximately a month the Prophet ﷺ decided to end the siege and return to Medina. When the Prophet ﷺ returned to Medina, having failed to actually conquer the city of Taif, within the year, in the ninth year of Hijrah, Taif itself decided to join the Prophet ﷺ and they sent a delegation. So this was the, the year of delegations. One of the de and how they would come is from the larger tribes, a delegation would arrive to speak to the Prophet ﷺ. This delegation would contain the leading dignitaries and most powerful figures, including poets and orators. And they would visit the Messenger ﷺ, speak to him, negotiate with him, embrace Islam themselves and promise to take the religion back to their people and apply all the rules including paying zakah to the Prophet ﷺ. And this is how the delegations would come and represent their entire tribes. 
So the delegation of Banu Tamim came. However, they, these were Arabs. These were uh, Arab, sorry, Bedouin. And many of them had not yet embraced Islam. So they would come in the year of delegations, visit the Messenger وسلم, discuss with him, negotiate with him. And many of them would embrace. And then they would return. So Banu Tamim came. Some of them were already Muslim. Very few of them, though. The majority of the delegation of Banu Tamim had not yet embraced Islam. But they came with that idea, with that vision. They arrived in Medina, and they came to the Masjid of the Prophet ﷺ in order to speak to him. At the same time, this delegation, although they were interested in Islam, there was also another reason. There had been an incident in which some of their people had been captured. And they wanted to discuss this with the Messenger ﷺ. In any case, the delegation came of Banu Tamim. And they arrived in the masjid. And they began, it, it was in the afternoon. The Prophet ﷺ was resting at home in one of the chambers. And the chambers, as I said, were adjacent to the masjid of Rasulullah If we imagine this to be the qibla, facing south, on the eastern side, so this is the qibla, and facing the Qibla to the left were some of the chambers of the Prophet ﷺ. The very first chamber is known as the home of Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha. And her home was split into two parts. So for those of you who have been to the masjid of the Messenger ﷺ, and you see the green <coughs> partition and the area known as Arawda. The Prophet ﷺ says, That that area which is between my house and my mimbar, my pulpit, is a garden of the gardens of Jannah. So that Rawda, those of us who've had an opportunity to sit in the rawda and be there. To the left of the rawda, where the green mesh is, that's where the chamber of the Prophet ﷺ, chambers begin. Now that was originally a wall, but he had a door. And that door opened into the masjid, and that's where the Prophet ﷺ would come from. And that door led into the outer chamber of Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha. So that was the first house, the house of Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha. When the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam arrived in Medina, he was only married to two wives, Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha and Saudah radiallahu anha. So only two homes were built. First of all, Aisha radiallahu anha's, and right next to her, Sauda radiallahu anha. But the one closest to 
the qibla as it stands now was that of Aisha radiallahu anha. So the door would open into the outer chamber of the house of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha. This outer chamber, you could call it a living room, known as a hujra, the chamber, the room. It was very small, extremely small. I don't know the exact figures offhand at the moment, but approximately seven feet by five, and that was the outer chamber. And the Prophet ﷺ would sit there. And this wasn't where the Prophet ﷺ would sleep at night. That outer chamber led to another inner chamber, which again, which was very small, which was known as a bedroom. And these two, just the outer chamber and the inner chamber, were the private quarters of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha. And then further, there was a house of Fatima radiallahu anha. And again, that contained an outer chamber and an inner chamber. Similarly, opposite the house of Aisha radiallahu anha towards the Qibla, was the house of Umm al-Mu'mineen Hafsa radiallahu anha. And I'll tell you where that was situated. It's no longer preserved. From the very earliest days, there was a need to expand the masjid. And Umar radiallahu anha expanded the masjid. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi himself expanded the masjid in the seventh year of Hijrah. Umar radiallahu anha extended it. Uthman radiallahu anha extended it. And then afterwards, one of the Umayyad governors, rulers, he also extended the masjid. But he was the first one. He wrote a letter to Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, who was a governor of Medina. And he told him to include, the, to demolish the chambers, the hujarat, of the Prophet sallallahu and include them in the masjid. So Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, who was just a governor at the time, who himself later became a very pious ruler, but at that time he was just the governor, he obeyed, he had no choice but to obey the decree of the ruler from Damascus, and he implemented the decree, and the chambers were removed. The narrators say that we never saw Umar ibn Abdul Aziz weep as much as he wept that day. And some of the other leading ulama, including the leader of the Tabi'een, Sa'id ibn al-Musayyab, he says that how we wish that these chambers would have remained exactly as they are, so that the new generation of Medina would grow up, and visitors would come to Medina, and all of them, the new generations, the future generations of Medina, and the future visitors from all over who arrived in Medina, they could come and they could see how the Prophet ﷺ lived, how simple his dwellings were, how small his chambers were. So by viewing the homes and the lifestyle of Rasulullah ﷺ, they would also be able to detach themselves from the dunya, knowing how simply the Prophet ﷺ lived, even though Allah had placed the treasures of the world at his feet. These were the words of Sayyid ibn Musayyib. 
So it was a sad day, but most of the chambers were removed. Now, <clears throat> today, if when we stand in front of the grave of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and offer our salams and our greetings, exactly at that spot was the house of Hafsa radiyallahu anha, directly in front of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha's house. So between the home of Aisha radiyallahu anha, remember that was a wall of the masjid, the front part where we offer salam is actually an extension. So the masjid, the front of the masjid ended where the rawdah was, parallel or in line with the home of Aisha radiyallahu anha. In front of her house, there was actually a gully, a small pathway. And then after the pathway, directly opposite was the home of Hafsa radiyallahu anha. And her home also contained an outer chamber and an inner chamber. And that home was obviously demolished. And that is exactly where we stand in front of the grave of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam to offer our salam. So realize that when you are standing there, that is the home of Hafsa radiyallahu anha. That is actually a spot where the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam lived slept, spent his night, prayed. So these, these are just some of the chambers. So the Prophet ﷺ was resting in the afternoon in one of the chambers. We don't know which one, but he was, he was resting. And he was having a siesta. Now these Bedouin of the Banu Tamim, this delegation, they came. And they did what the Arab delegations would do. They used to have a custom and a tradition. So what was the custom of these Bedouin Arabs? They would arrive in a large party, if they were ever visiting a ruler or a king or another tribal leader. And then they would, as I said earlier, they would have in their delegation poets and orators. So they would come, they would meet, greet. Then they would have what we call a mufakhara and a musha'ara. Mufakhara means mutual boasting. So the, an orator would stand from one of the tribes and extol the virtues of his tribe. We are like this, we are like that. And what would their virtues be? They used to speak about war, battles, spears, arrows. Wine, women, drink, goats, camels, horses. Now we may, and then the other tribe would speak as well. We own so many camels. These are our horses and steeds. This is how fast they are in racing. This is how we charge on our steeds in warfare. This is how brave we are. And again, they'd speak about bows, arrows, spears and swords. Now, we may find this very strange, but we don't change. This is human nature. And today we do exactly the same. We, we have these rap songs where all they speak about are drugs, wine, women, cars, rides, glocks, guns. And that's all they speak about. There's no difference whatsoever. This is the rap of today, the poetry. And that was a rap in the poetry of that day. And as I've explained before, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu an, we are accustomed to hearing poetry in English and in Urdu and in modern Arabic as being very slow. But originally it wasn't slow. 
That's why Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu an heard someone, someone told him that we recite the Qur'an this quickly and we complete it in this way. So Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu an said, Haddan kahadd al-shi'ir. No. He says, that is the wrapping of the wrapping of poetry. Why? We can only understand that, his words, when we realize that the Arabs, the way they would originally recite poetry is wrapping by spitting verses. In fact, the Prophet sallallahu Abdullah ibn Mas'ud himself relates that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa would say, A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytanir rajeem, min hamzahi wa nafkhihi wa nafthih. That I seek refuge and protection in Allah from the accursed and rejected devil. I seek refuge in him, min hamzahi wa nafkhihi wa nafthih, from his touch, which is madness. From his inflating, which is pride. And from his spitting. So I seek the refuge of I seek refuge in Allah and his protection from the spitting of the accursed devil. So what was the spitting? Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said, poetry. So they used to spit verses, just like we spit verses today. That was the original poetry. So the Arabs, they would spit poetry very rapidly. That was their rap of the day. And this is all they would speak about. Warfare, armory, weapons, rides, steeds, horses. And then they would have orators, and the orators would stand up and boast of their virtues and extol their virtues, and the poets would speak. So this was a tradition. So the Banu Tamim, when they came to the Prophet ﷺ, being unrefined Bedouin, remember most of them weren't Muslim at that time, they arrived in the masjid, and it was afternoon time, the Prophet ﷺ was asleep. They shouted out, all of them in unison, very loudly, began shouting, Ya Muhammad, ukhruj ilayna. Oh Muhammad, come out to us. Oh Muhammad, come out to us. Come out to us. And then the leader began saying that our praising is an ornament and our disparaging and our satire is a debasing and humiliation. What he meant is that, come out to us. We wish to do mufakharah with you, i.e. boast. We want to boast, we want to hear your boasts. And we want, we want to recite poetry to you, we want to hear your poetry. And our poetry, when we praise someone, then that is true praise. But if we satirize someone, then they will be humiliated. So the Prophet ﷺ arose from his sleep. He was disturbed by them. And then he came out. And he said to them that, do not say that, that your praising is praise indeed, and your satirizing is humiliation indeed, that only belongs to Allah. So this was the Banu Tameen. Eventually they sat with the Messenger وسلم, they spoke to him, many of them then embraced Islam. The Prophet then decided to send them back, and he had to appoint one of them as a leader over them. 
This is why I said the story, the verses are all entwined. So when the Prophet ﷺ wished to appoint a leader over the same delegation of Banu Tamim, one of them, he consulted Abu Bakr and Umar So Abu Bakr said, O Messenger of Allah, appoint this person as their leader. So Umar said, No, Ya Rasulullah, appoint that person as your leader. When that happened, Abu Bakr being a human being, he said to Umar You did not recommend anyone else except to oppose me. So Umar said, no, no, I did not seek to oppose you. Abu Bakr said, yes, you did. Umar said, no, I didn't. And they began arguing with each other. In their argument, they both raised their voices over and above the messenger. They both raised their voices. The messenger was silent. So that's another incident that took place. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed these verses and this surah. And the beginning of the surah deals with this whole incident of the delegation of Banu Tamim, their arrival, their manner of addressing the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the appointment of one of the leaders for Banu Tamim, and Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhumah's conflicting suggestions and their eventual arguing and raising their voices in the presence of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. That's the background to the revelation of the beginning verses of Surah Al-Hujurat. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu la tuqaddimu bayna yadayillahi wa rasoolihi wa attaqullah inna Allah sami'un alim. O those who have believed. Do not be forward in the presence of Allah and His Messenger. Do not advance before Allah and His Messenger. And be wary of Allah. Verily, Allah is all hearing, all knowing. Remember, although these verses were revealed then, they apply to us. The teaching, the etiquettes are still for us. And as Abdullah ibn Mas'ud used to say, whenever you hear the words, Ya amanu, O those who have believed, then you be the one who is being directly addressed. Think of yourself as being directly spoken to by Allah. So what this first verse tells us, O believers, do not be forward in the presence of the messenger before Allah and before his messenger. Do not advance. And a very good way of understanding the words, do not be forward, do not advance before the messenger, before Allah is, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تُقَدِّمُوا أَيْ لَا تُقَدِّمُوا أَنفُسَكُمْ بَيْنَ يَدَيِ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ O believers, do not place yourselves before Allah and His Messenger. Do not place yourselves before Allah and His Messenger. And that's in everything. The Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they were so conscious of this later, that they would not fast unless the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam 
they saw the Prophet ﷺ fast. They would not do things unless they saw the Messenger ﷺ do those things. The warning is, do not place yourselves before Allah and His Messenger. In anything, in action, in word, in deed, in thought, in judgment, in decision, even in formulating and holding opinions, in saying something. Abdullah ibn Abbas used to say, the meaning of this verse is, that do not say anything which contradicts the book of Allah and the sunnah of his messenger Prophet ﷺ in the final year sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal to Yemen as a guide, as a judge, as a teacher. So when he was bidding him farewell, since he was sending him as a teacher, as a guide, as a judge, as a governor, Prophet ﷺ said to him, Bima tahkum? How will you judge? How will you rule? How will you judge? So Mu'adh ibn Jabal said that I will judge by the book of Allah. So the Prophet said, and if you do not find anything in the book of Allah, he said, I will judge by the sunnah of his messenger. Then the Prophet said, if you do not find anything in the sunnah, then Mu'adh ibn Jibril said, Then I will exert myself in arriving at some understanding. So the Prophet lightly and lovingly thumped him on his chest and said, All praise be to that Allah who has guided and given the right ability and enablement to the messenger of the messenger of Allah. That that was the right course of action. Judged by the book of Allah, then by the sunnah of his messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And only then, only then, to resort to one's own judgment, thoughts and understanding. But however, that was true for the sahaba radiyallahu anhum. That was true for Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiyallahu But for us, and for all the ulama who came after the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they would actually say that we judge by the book of Allah and then the sunnah of his messenger and then by the understanding of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. Because our understanding cannot match theirs. Our opinions cannot rival theirs. So the ulama of Islam all say that after the book of Allah and the sunnah of his messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, even before we resort to our own judgment and our own rationalization, we refer to the authority and the judgment and the understanding of the collection of the sahaba radiallahu anhum, the collective companions. So this is one of the meanings of do not place yourselves before Allah and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa Just as Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiallahu said. He wouldn't resort to his own opinion. Even though the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sent him as a judge. But rather begin with the book of Allah and then the sunnah of his Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa In everything, whether it's in judgment, in opinions, in deeds, in action, in choices. Do not place yourselves before Allah and before His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa 
And that's a stark warning and a reminder at the very beginning of the surah, oh, those who have believed. If you truly believe, if you truly believe, then do not place yourselves before Allah and his messenger. Just as Allah says in another verse of the Quran, قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهِ Say, if you love Allah. People then claim to love Allah at the time of the Messenger We claim to love Allah. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala issued a challenge. Then, that say to them, O Messenger of Allah, إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ Allah, If you love Allah, فَاتَّبِعُونِي Then follow me. For following the messenger is to follow Allah. To obey the messenger is to obey Allah. To disobey the messenger is to disobey Allah. And a proof of one's claim of love for Allah is to follow and obey the messenger of Allah. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So if you truly love Allah, if you truly believe in Allah, O believers, do not place yourselves before Allah and his messenger. And that's not an, an idle message. It's not a light message because Allah immediately thereafter says, Allah and be wary of Allah. Allah is Allah is all hearing, all knowing. Allah doesn't just hear your words, but Allah knows and is fully aware and cognizant of your innermost thoughts and deepest feelings. So be sincere, be loyal in your obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and do not place yourselves before Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is an introduction. Following the introduction, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says? say? Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu. Again, O believers, O those who have believed. La tarfa'u aswatakum fawqa sawtin nabi. Do not raise your voices over the voice of the messenger. وَلَا تَجْهَرُوا لَهُ بِالْقَوْلِ And do not speak loudly to him in speech, in discourse. Like you're loudly speaking to one another. Lest your deeds perish and become null and void and you don't even realize. This is a reference to Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhumah. As I said, the delegation of Banu Tamim, when the Prophet sallallahu wished to appoint one of them as leader over them, he consulted Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhumah, who are his two chief companions. Abu Bakr would normally sit to his right, and Umar ibn al-Khattab would normally sit to his left. And then the leading muhajirun would sit in front of him, and then the ansar. So Abu Bakr suggested one person, Umar suggested another leader from Banu Tamim. Abu Bakr said to him, you did not choose or suggest this other leader person to be a leader except to oppose me. Umar protested his innocence and he said, no, I did not. They both raised their voices. The Prophet was silent. One of the things about the Messenger was that he was very modest, extremely bashful. He wouldn't react. He would not react. Allahu Akbar. He was extremely soft. 
And he was very sensitive, soft, humble, emotional people are generally extremely sensitive. They go hand in hand. It's the rough, tough, hardened, supposedly, with a hard shell, who are incensed. So if anyone, people often say, when we hear a bad word, when we hear criticism, when we hear disparaging talk, when we hear something offensive, we feel the pain, we feel the sorrow, the sadness, it shows on our face, we wear our hearts on our sleeves, on our faces. And then sometimes other people, they add insult to injury, they offend us, they insult us, they wound us, and then immediately thereafter they say, oh, you're being extremely sensitive rubbing salt into the wound. Is this freedom? Is this liberty? Where people are at liberty to say what they want about others, to offend them, to hurt them, to injure their feelings, to wound their innermost emotions, to assail their minds. When someone hits you on the body, Sometimes, depending on how resilient one's body is, sometimes the pain subsides within a few short moments to be forgotten. And the most that happens afterwards is discomfort. But when someone hurls arrows of abuse at you, they may not touch the body, but they assail the mind. They injure and wound our thoughts, our mentality, our very inner core, our being, our emotions, our ego, our very heart. And that pain lives on. And it's damaging. It's extremely damaging. Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Allah being our creator, and the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam being his representative, they taught us 14 centuries ago. Those truths and those realities are only beginning to be explored now, which is, it's not just physical abuse which is harmful. Emotional abuse needs to be recognized. Verbal abuse needs to be recognized. Mental abuse needs to be recognized. And in fact, our psychologists are discovering emotional, verbal, mental abuse is far more dangerous, far more devastating, far more harmful, far more insidious and surreptitious than physical abuse. And its effects are far more lasting. They can last a lifetime. And it's not just about individuals. What about the collective verbal, emotional and mental abuse that we receive? Is that liberty? Is that freedom? Is that dignity? This is why I said this surah teaches us liberty with dignity. Recognizing that not only are we to regard other people's belongings, lives, bodies... As sacred, 
we are also to regard their thoughts, their emotions, their feelings, their minds, their egos and their spirits to be inviolable, to be sacred, to be sacrosanct, to be beyond our limits and boundaries. Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam taught us that. So going back to the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, I was saying about people being sensitive. When we are hurt, and if someone tells us you're being sensitive, if you can remind them, if it's only going to exacerbate the problem, just remind yourself. That, if it's going to aggravate the situation, then don't. But just remind yourself that the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was sensitive. He was extremely sensitive. Allah told him again and again in the Quran, we know. We know that, that what they say grieves you. The Messenger could have said, I am the Messenger of Allah. What they say means nothing to me. He could have done that. But he was soft, extremely soft, bashful, modest, full of haya. As a result of which, he was sensitive. The Quraysh and his enemies would abuse him and reject him. And that would actually grieve and hurt the Messenger So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sought to reassure him. Allah reassured his Messenger And in fact, he was a human being. Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadija radiyallahu anha reassured him. So we are all in need of reassurance. That's human nature. We are all sensitive. But the Prophet ﷺ was extremely gentle, full of bashfulness and modesty. The Sahaba say of him and listen to their description that the Messenger ﷺ was more bashful, modest and shy than a virgin behind her veil. So Rasulullah he would hardly ever react and it was always Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who answered on his behalf. Always. He would never say anything, regardless of the situation. The Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa would be seated, sometimes even at home. The Sahaba radiallahu anhu would come and sit, whether it was at home or whether it was outside. Remember I was speaking about the chambers. So Aisha radiallahu anha had an outer chamber that was adjacent to the, to the masjid. When we read in the hadith that people visited the house of Aisha radiallahu anha, what's meant is that outer chamber, the kind of living room. It rarely means the inner chamber, which was actually covered, where the Prophet would spend the night and where they would sleep. So the sleeping quarters were different to the uh, outer chamber, but they were very small. So whenever we hear that the Messenger وسلم, was visited by people in any one of the homes, it, it normally means the outer chamber. And that's exactly when we hear the hadith that during i'tikaf, the Prophet وسلم, would be in the masjid, but Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha anha would comb his hair. So how would that happen? Well, if you imagine the, the rawda and that green mesh, there, there was a door there. So the Prophet ﷺ would lie in the masjid, leaning against the doorstep, and his noble head would be inside the outer chamber. 
And that's where Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha would be combing his hair. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would sometimes receive visitors at home and most of the time it would be outside. People would come and sit and he needed to go. But the Sahaba radiallahu anhum in their love and eagerness, they would sit around and they wouldn't depart. Sometimes the Prophet would motion to them, leave, go. But in their eagerness, he wouldn't be forceful, he wouldn't be persistent. So they would remain seated in the hope of remaining in his blessed company. And the Prophet in his modesty, in his shyness, bashfulness, he wouldn't repeat, he wouldn't tell them to go, he wouldn't persist. Nor would he rise and go himself. He would remain seated. So it took Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to tell them that وَإِذَا قِيلًا شُزُوا فَانْشُزُوا يَرْفَعِ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مِنْكُمْ وَالَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْعِلْمَ دَرَجَاتِ That when it is said to you, rise, rise and go. So Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa wouldn't say anything. In the fifth year of Hijrah, when he got married to Zainab bint Jahsh radiyallahu anha, this is how bashful he was. He invited the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum for a post-wedding meal, the walima. They actually came to the homes and ate. Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu was the khadim and the attendant of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So he was helping in distributing the food. There wasn't much, just very little that his mother Umm Sulaim radiyallahu anha had sent. Now the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, after eating, they remained behind. They started conversing and speaking amongst themselves. Prophet would come and see that they are all seated and he'd go back. He wanted them to leave. This was his wedding night. He wanted privacy. The Sahaba became engrossed in their conversation and they remained behind seating after food. So they wouldn't go. The Prophet would come, draw the curtain, see them there, go back. He'd send Anas radiallahu anhu, he'd come back himself, he'd look. But he wouldn't tell them even once, go. As a result of this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verses. Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu la tadkhulu buyut al-nabiyya illa an yu'dhana lakum ila ta'amin ghayra nazirina inah. Walakin idha du'eetum fadkhulu fa idha ta'imtum fantashiru wala musta'nisina li hadith. إِنَّ ذَٰلِكُمْ كَانَ يُؤْذِ النَّبِيَّ فَيَسْتَحْيِي مِنْكُمْ وَاللَّهُ لَا يَسْتَحْيِي مِنَ الْحَقِّ That, O oh believers, do not enter the homes of the Prophet unless you are granted permission to do so. To food, so when you are granted permission, then you can enter, even for food, إِلَىٰ طَعَامٍ غَيْرَ نَاظِرِينَ إِنَا without waiting for its time. And I'll explain that. But when you are called, then enter. فَإِذَا طُعِمْتُمُ When you have eaten, فَانْتَشِرُوا Then disperse. وَلَا مُسْتَعْنِسِينَ لِحَدِيثِ Do not linger enjoying one another's conversation. Verily, this would hurt and inconvenience the messenger. فَيَسْتَحْيِي مِنْكُمْ But he was too bashful of you. He was too shy of you. Wallahu la yastahi min al-haq. And Allah does not shy away from the truth.
So it took Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to mention to the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. There are so many incidents throughout the Qur'an and during the life of the Messenger where he wouldn't say anything, even with his wives. The Prophet was extremely bashful, even when it came to his wives, very soft. So if anyone taunts a husband saying, you're too soft, there's this macho attitude amongst men. that, But it's always projection. It's always projection. Every man likes to tell another man how he should behave. Often simply because that's how he wants to behave himself, but he can't. And that is very true. You'll find people advising their friends. Sometimes it's women, sometimes it's men. So the macho man will tell his friend, and I do not lie, I've actually, I know this for a fact, I deal with so many cases, and there have been instances where macho men tell their friends, Astaghfirullah, your wife said that to you, divorce her. Wallahi, divorce her. Is that how she treats you, divorce her? So he's very forward in telling his friend and giving macho advice that you should never stand for that, divorce her, and all the other poor woman has done has said a few words or argued with his, her husband, this guy's friend. But he himself is not just receiving words of abuse, he's actually receiving a few slaps from his wife at home. So, and yet, so the macho man, when he gives advice, often, I'm not saying it's always the case, but it's often a projection of what he would like to do himself, but he can't. Advice is very cheap, and this is why the ulama say, do not go to anyone for advice. Meaning, do not just go to anybody for advice. Go to those who have knowledge, who have experience, who have wisdom, who have taqwa, who have your best welfare and interests at heart, who are not broken individuals themselves, who are grounded, who are emotionally and mentally healthy, who don't have their own issues. Everyone has issues, but not to that degree. Go to such people. Many of us are broken, and we turn to one another for advice, and we receive broken advice that breaks our lives and our families. Be careful of who you go to. Advice is cheap. To the extent, and people have reported this to me, that you, you find friends talking to one another, whether it's men or women, and the man says, you know, my wife's doing this, my wife's doing that, this is how she treats me, this is what she says, that's what she does. And the friends say, I would never take that, you shouldn't take that. Divorce her. How simple is it? One word, divorce her. Right, where are we going now then? Where shall we go now? What about tomorrow evening? You coming football tomorrow? So one leap from one to the other. Divorce her. You coming football tomorrow? It's advice is cheap. People offer this advice and many individuals, many individuals choose to act on the advice out of obligation. A man feels that, sometimes women, my friends are advising me to do this. 
If I don't act on their advice, what will they all say? How will I look? How will I appear? I'll be less manly. We're always worried about what people will say of us. We spend our lives worrying about what people will say. That's our greatest fear. In Urdu, what will people say? Especially in our culture, what will people say? We spend our whole lives making decisions, making choices, based on the fear of what other people will say. And do you know what people will say at the end of it? Nothing. When we die, all that they will say is, Inna lillahi wa inna That's what will be said. That's all that will be said. And it'll be, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un, and everyone will get back to their lives. Advice is cheap. Only go to those who are healthy, well-grounded, who are emotionally healthy, who have knowledge, who have wisdom, who have the knowledge of Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam, who have age, who have experience. Those who are seasoned and weathered, go to them. Even if you cannot find such ulama, people of piety and knowledge, approach those who are elderly in your own family. Those who you have seen who are well-grounded, healthy, emotionally healthy, decent individuals, approach such people. Be extremely careful of who you approach for advice, especially in grave personal matters such as issues of marriage and divorce. Going back to Rasulullah I said even with his wives he was extremely soft, very, very soft, bashful. He wouldn't even say much to his wives. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had to warn them. The whole of Surah Al-Tahreem, Allah says, Allah begins a surah with the words, Ya ayyuhan nabiyyu lima tuharrimu ma ahallallahu lak. Tabtaghi mardata azwajik. Wallahu ghafoorur raheem. Qad faradallahu lakum tahillata aymanikum. Wallahu mawlakum. Wahuwa al-alimul hakeem. Allah says, O Prophet, why do you make haram? That which Allah has made halal for you. Seeking the pleasure of your wives. What does that verse show? Even the messenger of Allah being who he was, he went out of his way to please his wives. To the extent that he even decided to make haram upon himself that which Allah had made haram. Just so that he could appease his wives. He could please them. And that was a messenger of Allah. He wouldn't say anything to them. For their pleasure, for their satisfaction, for their endearment, for their love. He went to the extent of making haram upon himself that which Allah had made halal for him. Allah says, تَبْدَغِي مَرْضَاتَ أَزْوَاجِكَ وَاللَّهُ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ And Allah is most forgiving, most merciful. Allah then says, قَدْ فَرَضَ اللَّهُ لَكُمْ تَحِلَّةَ أَيْمَانِكُمْ O Messenger of Allah, Allah has made obligatory upon you to unravel your oath, to declare it null and void. And to actually go ahead and do what you said you wouldn't. Allah commands you to do that. So the, 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 the lesson is, the Messenger وسلم, wouldn't say anything to the Sahaba. Anhum. He wouldn't say anything to individuals or groups. 
He wouldn't even say anything to his wives. That's how bashful, modest, humble he was. Allah always spoke for him. And here too, Sayyidina Umar Abu Bakr radiallahu anhumah, even though they were both his fathers-in-law, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa when they both argued and raised their voices before him, he did not say a word to them. He remained silent. As per custom, as Allah has done elsewhere, Allah, mind you, this surah was revealed before Surah Al-Tahreem, immediately before Surah Al-Tahreem, uh, according to many ulama, uh, according to some ulama, and according to others, it was revealed after, in any case. Sayyidina Umar and Abu Bakr the Prophet did not say anything to them. They both raised their voices in front of him. Allah revealed these verses. And Allah warns them, O those who have believed, do not raise your voices over the voice of the Prophets. Do not raise your voices. And do not speak loudly to him in discourse, in speech, as you would loudly speak to one another, lest your deeds perish whilst you don't even realize. These are two separate things. Meaning, even if you're not speaking to the Prophet ﷺ, and you are merely in his presence, even in his presence, lower your voices. Do not raise your voices in the presence of the Messenger. Do not. And Sayyidina Umar and Abu Bakr they learnt their lesson. This was a lapse on their part. This was a momentary thing. Their human nature got the better of them. And it was a slip, a momentary slip. <coughs> Otherwise, they immediately came to their realization. They immediately came to their senses regarding this. And straight away they both accepted. And do you know to what degree? Abdullah ibn Zubair, he relates this hadith. Imam Bukhari relates this incident. Uh, this hadith from Abdullah ibn Zubair. He says that after the revelation of this verse, and after this incident, Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab, from that moment onwards, would speak to the Prophet ﷺ so softly, even though he was loud and of booming voice, that the Prophet ﷺ would have to actually ask him what he said. So he'd speak so softly, the Messenger ﷺ would have to confirm by asking him what he had actually said. And Abu Bakr he approached Prophet ﷺ after the revelation of this verse and he said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, I swear by Allah that from now until the day I die, I will only speak to you as a confident whispers to his confidence. So I will only speak to you in whispers. And that's exactly how he would do, what he would do. Out of fear that their deeds do not perish. This is the adab. This is the ihtiram, this is the respect that we have been commanded to show the Messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, both in his life and after his passing. This is why the ulama unanimously say that in the presence of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, if we are blessed with the opportunity of visiting the Masjid of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and being in that masjid 
we then avail ourselves of the opportunity to stand before him humbly and offer our greetings and salutations to him, then whether we give our salam to him or whether we are just in the masjid, in the immediate vicinity of his grave, in the presence, we must lower our voices and adopt the utmost humility, respect and silence in his noble presence. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu and once heard two people speaking loudly in the masjid. He came to them and he, he summoned them and he said, where are you two from? And they said, we are both from Al-Ta'if, the city of Ta'if. So Umar radiyallahu excused them and said to them, if you were both from the city of Medina, I would have beaten you to pain. I would have given you pain by beating you. How dare you raise your voices in the presence of the Messenger of Allah. Meaning, this was after the passing away of Rasulullah by his grave. So do not raise your voices even by the grave of the Messenger of Allah. And we must lower our voices in the presence of the Messenger of Allah, the Sahaba radiallahu during his lifetime. And for us now, if we are present in the Masjid of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam, then around his noble grave, we must present ourselves with the utmost humility and respect. These words are applicable now. The ulama all say. Furthermore, the ulama have gone to the extent of saying that, O oh, believers, do not raise your voices over the voice of the messenger. That although the verse is not applicable, sorry, the verse is, was not revealed for this, but by extension of its meaning and by applying the etiquette, we should also apply this verse to the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa which is, show respect to the speech of the Messenger of Allah and do not raise your voices or your speech over the speech of the Messenger of Allah, which is the hadith. So show respect to the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa This is how the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and those who followed them, they respected the hadith of the Messenger of Allah. Imam Malik ibn Anas rahimahullah, the Imam of Medina, the famous Imam of hadith, the way he would relate hadith, when he would relate hadith, people would gather and they'd sit outside in the gathering. And he would be at home, he would bathe, he would do ghusl. He would dress in his best clothes. And he would come out. And before his arrival, he would instruct that the whole area would be fragranced with bakhur and aloe wood, which we refer to as oud and agarwood. This would be burnt in that whole area around the whole gathering. And then, when everything was fumigated and fragranced, Imam Malik ibn Anas would come out with great waqar, with great self-composure and dignity. Imam Malik, rahimahullah, would hardly ever joke or laugh. Never. Never. He was a man of great seriousness. And he was revered. And he says, when he started teaching, Remember, his teachers were the tabi'een. They were the successors to the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. He says, I did not sit to teach and to begin giving fatwa. This also refers to the beginning of the verse. What did we learn? Oh, believers, do not 
forward yourselves. Do not advance. Do not place yourselves ahead of. Do not be forward in the presence of Allah and His Messenger وسلم, Do not speak without knowledge. So Imam Malik ibn Anas says, I did not begin giving fatwa. I did not begin answering questions of religion. And I did not sit down to teach until 70 of my leading mashayikh and teachers of Medina granted me permission to do so. 70. And not just 70 individuals, 70 of the leading mashayikh and tabi'een, successors of the Sahaba radiallahu anhu and their students, they granted him permission to do so. And he was a man of great waqar, composure. He would hardly ever laugh, never joke, hardly ever joke. And when it came to the hadith, he showed immense respect. This is how he'd prepare himself. In fact, Imam Malik would hardly ever teach much. He'd sit down and the students would read hadith to him and he'd listen. That's all he would do, he'd listen. Occasionally commenting here and there. Once he was walking and a man asked him, someone asked him a question about hadith whilst he was walking. They were walking and he asked him a question about hadith. Imam Malik actually turned around and slapped him. He slapped him and he said, How dare you ask me a question about hadith in such a casual manner whilst walking? This should be done respectfully in a gathering, with dignity, with etiquette, with decorum. There's a hadith, there's a narration in the Muatta of Imam Malik that if someone calls someone a donkey, he is to be punished. So it's a narration of Muatta. So someone asked Imam Malik that, what's the punishment if, someone's called a, if someone calls another a donkey? So he mentioned the punishment narrated in his Muatta. Then the man asked, that what's the punishment if someone calls another a horse? Now, we may not really understand this, but in certain cultures, like in the Asian culture, the poor donkey is reviled. So, if you really want to disparage someone, you call them a donkey. Gada um, kota in Arabic, himar, himar. So, um, but we may not understand it in English so much, but in Arab culture, in Asian culture, it's true. So he's, if someone calls another a donkey, he is to be punished. So Imam Malik mentioned the punishment. Then the same question I asked him, and what about if someone calls someone a horse? Imam Malik got angry. And he said, you should be punished. Does anyone call someone a horse? Merely to tease them or abuse them? Again, respect for knowledge, respect for the hadith of Rasulullah So the ulama say, do not raise your voices over the voice of the messenger, over the speech of the messenger, that means a hadith. Of course, not to that degree, just as Allah says, when the Qur'an is recited, listen to it attentively. And just as Allah quotes the Quraysh, the, the, the unbelievers at the time, what did they say? That oh, they, they would tell one another, do not listen to the Quran. 
and cause disruption therein. So if someone's reciting the Qur'an, create some din and noise and cause disruption. So although we can't do it to that degree, we can never elevate the hadith to the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But undoubtedly they come after the words of Allah. The speech of the Messenger comes after the speech of Allah. Respect for the speech of the Messenger وسلم, comes immediately after, the, after respect to the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We need to learn how to respect the hadith of the Messenger وسلم, just as we supposedly respect the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We have a lot to learn about etiquette, about respect, about ihtiram, about adab. In every field, especially in relation to Allah and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, do not raise your voices over the voice of the Messenger. He also told the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, وَلَا تَجْهَرُوا لَهُ بِالْقَوْلِ كَجَهْرِ بَعْدِكُمْ لِبَعْضِ Do not Speak loudly to him in speech as you would speak loudly to one another. And in another verse of the Quran in Surah An-Nur, لا تجعلوا دعاء الرسول بينكم كدعاء بعضكم بعضا. Do not call out to the Prophet ﷺ. Do not make the call or the address to the Messenger like your manner of addressing one another, which simply means this. You know how we call one another, O Zayd, O Bakr, O Umar. Do not call the Prophet ﷺ by such terms. Allah never said, Ya Muhammad. O oh, Muhammad. Allah always called him, Ya Ayyuhan Nabi. O oh, Prophet. So, address him with a title of respect. Do not just say, O oh, Muhammad. This is why only the Bedouin would say that. And the Sahaba anhu would be very offended. Otherwise, the Sahaba anhum, when they would speak to him, how would they address him? Allahu Akbar. فِدَاكَ أَبِي وَأُمِّي يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ May my parents, may my father and mother be your ransom, O Messenger of Allah. May they be sacrificed for your sake, O Messenger of Allah. Even his wives, the wives of the Prophet ﷺ would not call out to him by his first name. They would never say Muhammad. They would say Messenger of Allah. Now, they, these were the wives. They would show him respect. The wives respected him. The companions respected him. His father's-in-law respected him. His enemies respected him. Abu Sufyan, when he learned that his daughter Ramla got married to the Prophet ﷺ, he was a chieftain of the Quraysh at the time. He did not fume in anger and react and make threats. You know what he said? Abu Sufyan actually said, even though he was the bitterest enemy of the Messenger of Allah at the time, Abu Sufyan actually said, she has married someone worthy. Even though he was his enemy. She has married a worthy man. So his enemies respected him. His wives respected him. And that meant the way we address the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The Sahaba radiallahu anhum were not allowed to say, O oh Muhammad, O oh Muhammad. The only people who did it were the rough Bedouin, the unrefined, coarse Bedouin, but not the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. So that's another etiquette which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. And then Allah warned them 
that observe these etiquettes, be respectful towards a messenger, indeed, in approach, in mannerisms, in speech, in address, lest your deeds perish and you don't even realize. Now, how does that equate? If someone calls the Prophet ﷺ, O Muhammad, and does not address him properly, or if someone raises their voices in his presence, does that automatically lead to the perishing of one's deeds, where all our good deeds become null and void? Not necessarily, but do you know what this verse means? This is the real meaning. When a person becomes disrespectful, that lack of respect diminishes the other person's position in their view. And each incident of disrespect creates momentum for a subsequent occurrence of disrespect. And soon before realising a person becomes more and more relaxed, less and less observant of the boundaries, less and less bashful, more and more provocative, more and more belligerent, more and more liberal with the other person's boundaries and respect towards them, until, without realising, they go to the extreme. And this may happen with the Messenger of Allah. Close the door before it becomes too dangerous. Maintain respect for the Messenger of Allah. One incident of disrespect, one incident of casual behaviour will open the door and create momentum for subsequent occurrences of casual behaviour and disrespect. Once a person goes down that path, Allah forbid, that disrespect of the Messenger وسلم, may eventually lead to disbelief. And that can happen. Respect gains a lot for a person in Islam. Allah loves respect. Those, and we've seen this. We, Islam teaches us so much about respect. So much. And inshallah, I'll touch upon that on other occasions. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, lest your deeds perish and you don't even re- realize. Finally, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I'll end here. There's so much more to say. But I'll end here, I'm conscious of the time. So I'll continue with the remainder of even this part of Surah Al-Hujurat next week. But um, there are some beautiful stories about how the Sahaba عنهم, respected the Prophet وسلم, and how they lowered their voices before him. And how Allah describes that lowering of their voices and their respect as being a sign of taqwa. Allah has taught us so much about adab and etiquette and we have to be mindful of it. I'll end with just one thing. If you recall, I mentioned about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala telling the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum not to enter the homes of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam without permission and without waiting for food and once they've eaten to eat and then to disperse. All of that is applicable to us. These are simple etiquettes which we have lost that are mentioned in the Qur'an. We are not to disturb people. And I'll speak more about that next week because uh, Allah tells the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, Allah tells us in the Quran, 
what would have been better for this visiting delegation. We shouldn't disturb people. We should respect their privacy. We shouldn't just go banging on doors, knocking on doors at any time of the day. Nor should we constantly disturb people, even by contacting them by phone. That's an invasion of privacy. It's intrusive. It really is. We should seek permission for visits. We should be so mindful of other people's privacy that as Allah says, do not enter the homes of the Prophet ﷺ, even though he is your teacher, your leader, your mentor, your guide. He is everything to you. But respect his privacy. Do not enter his homes unless you are expressly given permission to do so. If you are invited to food, then enter. But even for that food, you shouldn't wait for its time. Do you know what that means? Avoid visiting the Messenger وسلم, at times when you know he is going to be eating or resting. So when you know, avoid lunch times. Well, in those days, it wouldn't have what we call lunch. They would have ghada and asha, meaning a mid-morning large meal and a, uh, not large, but a mid-morning meal and an evening meal. But avoid times of eating. Why? Do not place the other person under an obligation. So, avoid times of eating. Allah expressly says that. When you have eaten, then disperse. Do not stick around. Do not linger engaging in conversation, disturbing the family. There are so many simple adab and etiquettes of food, of inviting one another, of visiting people, that Allah and His Rasul have taught us, but which we have lost. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. May Allah make us amongst those who observe these etiquettes towards Allah and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I'll continue with the rest next week. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulih. Nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayhi.